0: scientists have probably never had as much prominence in the daily lives of ordinary people as they had during the COVID-19 pandemic. Virologists, epidemiologists and public health scientists helped governments around the world to track and understand the coronavirus.
1: An alarming new COVID variant raising concerns around the world. The WHO labelling the newly named Omicron variant, a
0: variant of concern first detected in South Africa and quickly spreading. President Biden... Doctors, molecular biologists and pharmacologists worked out how to test, treat and vaccinate against the disease. The world's leading scientists
1: have expressed their delight along with a strong note of caution, following the news that a vaccine against coronavirus has proved 90% effective in early results.
0: According to modelling by The Economist, more than 20 million people have died so far in the pandemic. But that staggering death toll would no doubt have been even higher without the work of so many scientists. It's been a phenomenal collective achievement. But the relationship between scientists and everyone else, governments or members of the public, has not always been smooth in these past few years. Scientists had to appear in public every day to explain brand new knowledge that they had just learned about the virus or lockdowns or vaccines or whatever else. The CDC recommends only people with the coronavirus symptoms wear a mask, not the healthy people trying to prevent themselves from getting sick. So what can you- Scientists are meant to collect and consider evidence when forming and communicating their views. That often left them at odds with many people who either didn't understand the limits of emerging knowledge or simply misused it. Confusion often resulted. And scientists, of course, also became embroiled in the rough and tumble of the political process. Remember that phrase about governments just following the science? We follow the science. Of course, we will be relying, as ever, on the science to inform us as we have from the beginning. It sounded good, but in practice it often just meant that politicians had easy scapegoats to justify controversial decisions. As scientists increasingly became public figures, They were held to account for their pronouncements by the media, and even their personal lives came under attack. COVID-19 revealed the power and potential of modern scientific research. But it also showed the ways in which society at large can use the results of science in problematic or messy ways. Scientific knowledge is probably the best tool we have to solve some of the world's biggest problems, such as climate change. But it could also lead to great harm if people don't think through the more nefarious uses of things like artificial intelligence or biotechnology, which could be used to make new pathogens. Someone who's thought a lot about all of this is Martin Rees. He's an astronomer and emeritus professor at the University of Cambridge. In fact, he's also the Astronomer Royal, a ceremonial title that stretches back to the 18th century and was once held by the famous astronomer Edmund Halley. Lord Rees of Ludlow, as he's formerly known, has also been the president of the Royal Society and he co-founded the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, at the University of Cambridge. One of his books is Our Final Century, and that was all about how humans might cause their own destruction sometime within the next 100 years. The question mark at the end of that title, though, suggested a slim measure of hope for humanity. His latest book is much more optimistic. If science is to save us, looks at the role of scientists in modern life. His message is that science is not just for scientists. Today, he'll explain to me why. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. This week, I'm talking to Martin Rees. The distinguished cosmologist and astronomer argues that science is the best way to solve the world's biggest problems, but there are still plenty of hurdles before it can fulfil its promise. Martin Rees, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for
1: having me on your programme.
0: In your new book, you start by writing about three coming mega catastrophes. Could you just outline for me what those mega catastrophes are and, and which one
1: concerns you the most? The three I highlight in the book are biocatastrophes, which is not only pandemics, which could be even worse in future than the one we've just been emerging from, but also possibly engineered pandemics. So bio threats are my number one concern. The second class of threats are those for misuse of cyber and AI, either, again, by malfunctioning or by design. And the third are environmental disasters, particularly climate change and loss of biodiversity.
0: Are these catastrophes of human making in the sense that they're all related to human technologies in some way, but are some of them inevitable or are some of them because of error and malevolence or accidental? What's the sort of range there?
1: Well, of course, the present pandemic most people think is natural, but the likelihood of pandemics is probably expanded by the high density of populations and rapid international travel. So there are lots of types of natural catastrophe whose consequences are greater in our modern world than they would have been a long time ago. To take one extreme example of that, extreme solar flares before 1850, they wouldn't have had any effect, really, whereas now solar flares have quite a serious potential effect on uh, electronics and satellites and things like that. So we've got to bear in mind that natural threats can be more serious if our infrastructure for our present civilization depends on them.
0: Of the three mega catastrophes
1: that you've sort of outlined, is there one that you think about the most? Well, probably it is engineered threats. And I suppose my concern is that the technology empowers just a few people, or even a relevant individual, with sufficient skill to cause global devastation, releasing a dangerous pandemic, for instance, or indeed a cyber attack, which has catastrophic effects. So the real challenge to governance, in my opinion, is to ensure that we can benefit from new technologies like gene editing, gain-of-function experiments on viruses and things like that and all the huge benefits we get from cyber networks and all the rest of it without allowing things to go wrong through the malevolence of a few people. And I think this is a really, really big challenge because it will produce a tension between three things we want to preserve in our society, freedom, privacy and security. And, of course. In a world where the worst an individual can do is not that bad, we are prepared to accept the risk that there'll be a few malevolent actors. But in a case when even one malevolent actor can cause global catastrophe, then it's a risk that we probably can't take. And I think nations will have to give up a good deal of privacy in order to achieve the security in the face of those possibilities. You mentioned these problems and catastrophes in your book, Our Final Century, which was published almost
0: 20 years ago. And I wonder, in those intervening 20 years, technology has only got more advanced and all of the things you're talking about have only become more possible, I guess. Has your thinking on them changed? Have you
1: become more or less optimistic about things? Well, I mean, I feel that my predictions were, in a sense, uh, justified because the concerns are greater now because people are more empowered Uh, genetic modification is a technology which was in a very primitive state 20 years ago and has developed. Uh, So I think we have uh, got greater risks. But at the same time, of course, we've got huge benefits. I mean, I think one of the obvious benign consequences of the last 20 years has been the global spread of the internet and mobile phones and all that. That's a huge benefit. Indeed, it's the only really important benefit that the average person's had from technology in the last 10 years. So I don't want to be entirely gloomy, but I think the threats have all got greater in the last 10 years. I remember when you gave talks about that book back then, Our final
0: century, the title, had a question mark at the end. What's your sort of risk rating on that now?
1: Well, to be honest, I think it's very unlikely that anything could wipe out all human beings. But one can think of lots of scenarios. that will be serious setbacks to our civilization, not just locally, but globally, because we're so interconnected that you can't have a disaster in one area without it spreading to other continents. So I think we will indeed collectively have a bumpy ride through this century.
0: One of the um, catastrophes which is certainly going to happen is is climate change, which is happening right now. In in your book, you were quite constructive about thinking about how we can innovate our way out of these problems. And I'd like to talk about that. Energy is one specific area, which I think is interesting in that front. And there was a lovely story
1: you put in in one of your chapters about what Britain's energy system will look like in 400 years. Yes, well, that was really a historical anecdote that J.B.S. Haldane, who was a famous scientist and popular writer in the 1920s and 30s, and in one of the articles he wrote a scenario for what would happen 400 years in the future, and this was the idea that we would get all our power from uh, windmills, using it to generate hydrogen for storage, etc. This, of course, was very far-sighted at the time, and he set this 400 years in the future, but that's because he wasn't worried about climate change, he was worried about the coal running out. In
0: your book, you talk about how innovation might work and how to foster it and so on. Um, The UK, for example, has a new agency that's trying to do innovation in a different way, um, the Advanced Research Invention Agency. And it's modelled on America's DARPA, the Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency, which has famously invented lots of um, things that we use all around us now. I just wonder, if you were advising innovation agencies, what, what are your sort of
1: main thoughts and bits of advice to encourage innovation in scientific research? Well, of course, the main places where innovation occurs is in university labs or sometimes in special purpose research labs like the Laboratory of Molecular Biology and the Crick Institute, places like that. And I discuss in my book whether the balance between the environment of a university and the environment of a research institute is changing because what's actually happening is not necessarily very encouraging because I'm on the... um, House of Lords Select Committee on Science and Technology, which has just produced a report being sceptical about the aspiration to be a science superpower, feeling that in fact we're heading rather in the wrong direction because of many of the changes that are made, the over-bureaucratisation of the system. And also in universities, there's a risk that they are becoming less attractive to ambitious and touted young people because of the slow promotion and uh, the greater bureaucracy and more constraints. So we do worry about whether the environment for the kind of innovative research in the UK is getting less attractive than it was. And certainly, our attractiveness to foreign experts coming to settle here has been diminished by Brexit and by other things. But you were asked about this entity called ARIA, based on, as you say, the American DARPA. What's actually been proposed is actually something quite small, with a budget which is only 1% or 2% of the budget of the UKRI, which is the main institution within government which supports research in universities and elsewhere. And in that perspective, it's just a sideshow because the ministers say that this is a wonderful way in which scientists can uh, work in a long-term way on blue skies research without too much administrative hassle. But they'd be doing far more good if they reduced the amount of such administrative hassle in those who are supported by the UKRI, which is supporting 50 times as much research as ARIA will ever do. So I think it's a sideshow which may distract from the very serious requirement to reduce the amount of bureaucracy and audit culture, etc., in university research and other institutions. If this culture of bureaucracy
0: and auditing and everything is suppressing sort of the creativity and
1: the potential for innovation in places like universities. How did that come to pass? I think the main thing which concerns me is just the demographics because I started my career in the 1960s. That was a time when universities had gone through a recent burst of expansion and also everyone retired at 65. So the young outnumbered the old and Therefore, there was a prospect of fairly quick promotion, whereas now, of course, there's understandably no further expansion. And so, especially with the abolition of retiring age, promotion tends to be slower. And this is not just a UK concern, it's a concern in the United States as well, because the NIH gives grants in medicine and health, and they've discovered that the average age at which you get your first grant from the NIH is about 43 whereas in the old days it would have been about 30. But the risk to me is that those who are going to be deterred from becoming academics by uh, this reduction in its attractiveness are going to be just the ones we least want to lose. But I think there's another possibility which may ameliorate some of these concerns, and that's that if the present system continues, there may be people who enjoy science but go into a, a startup, etc., et cetera, and make enough money to retire in early middle age and become independent scientists. And this is, in a sense, a renewal of the tradition in the 19th century, which gave us Darwin and Lord Rayleigh, two of the greatest scientists who happen to be rich, and they could support themselves. And if there are more people who have a scientific training and scientific enthusiasm, but have spent, say, 10 or 20 years making money and then they decided to become academics, this would be a good thing all round because this would bring in more independent thinkers. This is essentially what people like Elon
0: Musk and Jeff Bezos and others are doing by getting billions in technology and then investing it in their own versions of what they think science should be doing, I guess, in various ways.
1: That's not quite the same, because they're not doing the science themselves, but they are doing brilliant engineering. And I highly admire Musk. I think one of my colleagues described him as a Brunel for the 21st century, and that's not a crazy comparison. This idea of a person becoming rich
0: through some means and then doing science as a later field, as you say, is something that has happened in history and changed after probably the Second World War, when science became a more professionalised academic institution in the structure, didn't it? There are some advantages of going back to that, I guess, but it does mean that you have
1: to get rich first, doesn't it? So it's not very accessible. Oh No, it doesn't. But I think we've got to plan for longer active lifetimes and careers where people go through several phases, not do the same thing for 40 years. Uh, I have another chapter in my book when I Discuss how universities need to reform so they're not dominated their student body by full time residential eighteen to twenty one year olds, but allow for people to drop out of university and drop back in later. So I think we need to have more flexible lifetime learning and associate with that uh, more flexible careers generally.
0: Let's talk a bit about the place of science in modern discourse and society and and the way that's changed. uh, Because there's a large chunk of your book where you talk about this. You wrote that. um Scientists often bemoan the fact that the public has a meagre grasp of their subject. But then you admonish scientists by saying that perhaps they can protest a bit too much. What
1: what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, certainly it is unfortunate that the public knows very little about basic science and basic statistics. And we saw in the COVID pandemic that the scientists can help, but they can only help if the public has a feel for probabilities and, and that sort of thing. But when I said scientists attest too much, I suppose I'm just saying that although I think it's a pity that many people can't tell the difference between a proton and a protein, it's equally sad if they can't find Ukraine or Korea on a map and don't know the history of their country. And that's true of many people. So I think it's just basic education which is lacking below the level which we should aspire to in an informed democracy. And so does
0: that put any onus on scientists if they're seeing that the grasp, public grasp of knowledge or numbers or anything is is, is not
1: uh, to the level they'd like? What's their responsibility? I think when we turn to something like climate change, the problem is that these decisions affect people 20 or 30 years from now. And of course, it's hard, certainly a big ask, to expect politicians to make these decisions when they tend to think about the next election. And, and so We've got to ensure that the voters whose views they care about are informed. And here the scientists can do their bit. But what we need are charismatic figures who the public does listen to and who can shift public opinion in a big way. And I mention in my book a rather disparate quartet of people who have been very effective in the climate debate over the last few years. These four are uh, Pope Francis, David Attenborough, Bill Gates, and Greta Tornberg. Four people very different from each other, but I think each of them has had a very big effect on millions of people who follow them and take their views seriously. Do you think that all of the things
0: you talked about earlier, about scientists sort of engaging with people, explaining things, getting ideas out into the public, all of that is even more important in a world where misinformation is
1: so rife? I think it is, and of course, misinformation It's not just Trump, it's a general tendency which is a consequence of the availability of social media. And I think we've got to accept the fact that now that people don't get their news from major broadcasters or newspapers, where the news is presented by responsible journalists who um, muffle the extremes, as it were, it's now disseminated. Um, via social media, where the extremists have a view, and indeed they get more clicks, and so we end up with a polarized set of opinion on many issues and I think all we can say, and I just say it in my book, people should realize that not all views of equal value, and I agree it's becoming a challenge, and people need to make an effort to pick out the reliable sources. Scientists can help, and organizations can help by sort of analogues of kite marks and things like that but it's difficult but of course at the same time we must be too dogmatic we should realize that sometimes the mavericks are right but uh, less frequently than many people hope
0: of course many of the great scientific breakthroughs of the past were made by mavericks or those who went against the herd But how to distinguish interesting mavericks from cranks is a problem, not just for laypeople, but for the whole scientific establishment. Coming up, I'll be continuing my conversation with Martin Rees, and we'll talk about how the pandemic changed the public image of scientists, how they deal with fame, and whether or not the right people get Nobel Prizes. On today's show, I'm talking to Lord Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, whose new book is called If Science is to Save Us. He has some strong opinions about the role of scientists as public figures. But what I wanted to know was how he thinks scientists stand in public esteem, particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: I think it's changed positively. I mean, there have been lots of opinion polls and scientists still rank pretty high compared to politicians and journalists and many people in business. And so I think there is a a general respect for scientists, particularly those in academia. But of course, scientists shouldn't be complacent. They should express the doubts when they have doubts and also accept that when decisions have to be taken, then there are other components in the decision, quite apart from the science, where they don't have any special expertise.
0: And so I guess this is... The problem you have of when scientists sometimes become famous or popular, then they asked about all sorts of things that are beyond their
1: remit, essentially. (laughs) The question is, uh, which scientists should one listen to? And of course, there is the danger of some scientists who get famous then venturing outside their expertise. And in fact, I have in my book some comments on uh, the way in which different scientists grow old. You say there's three ways that scientists grow old. What are they? Yes. Well, one way is to uh, go on doing what they're good at, and accepting that they may be less good than their young colleagues at absorbing new techniques and new data. And the second is uh, that they just leave science completely. But the third way, which is a route taken by many of the most eminent scientists, is to uh, feel that you are still a scientist wanting to understand the world, but they've got bored with the area of their traditional expertise, and they venture into new fields where they don't have expertise and overreach themselves, often embarrassingly for their reputation. And uh, I could quote, but there won't, uh, several well-known examples of this happening. So one has to guard against that. But uh, it's normally said that scientists do their best work when they're young. That's exaggerated. I think if they stick to what they're good at, they can stay on a fairly high plateau for the rest of their lives. But there are few scientists of whom one would say that their last works are their greatest in contrast to composers of whom I would often say that. And I think this is an important difference, which is that um, scientists are part of a collective social enterprise where to stay on the frontiers, you've got to absorb new ideas, new techniques, and be interactive with others. It's not a solo activity. Whereas if you're a composer, then you're influenced by the styles of music when you were young. But thereafter... It's mainly internal development. Beethoven didn't have any new external influences beyond his youth when he listened to Haydn, etc. Um, But he went on to uh, deepen his work through internal development. And I think that's a contrast between the creative artists uh, and scientists. And, of course, there are other differences which are important. uh, In the case of a creative artist, even if their work doesn't last, then it's still their own thing. It's something they've done individually. Whereas in science, it's the opposite. I mean, even if you do something which is really important, it's something which would have been done by someone else not too long afterwards if you didn't do it. Uh, So in science, even the leading practitioners are really adding a few bricks to the edifice of public knowledge. So their work has durability but it's got uh, less individuality, and that's an important difference. It's just very rare for one single person to dominate a field. And that's why I have a chapter which is rather critical of things like Nobel Prizes, which try to highlight individuals and underrate the extent to which even the uh, most distinguished person depends on the supporting cast, as it were. You're not a fan of... uh... Big prizes in science, like the Nobels,
0: for example, are you?
1: I, I think they distort the nature of science because um, the awards are given in a limited number of fields, and the fact that the Nobel Prizes have more public attention than any others is a bit damaging, in that it leads people to the view that the people who win the Nobel Prizes are very special. And of course, there's another complication, which is that people who make great discoveries aren't necessarily great intellects, they're often people who are just lucky. And so if the prize is given just for a discovery, then it's going to be given to many people who aren't specially great intellects in general. And this aggravates the problem that uh, scientists who become celebrities um, are listened to when they pronounce on topics outside their expertise. And many of them are not that special and shouldn't really express views outside their area of expertise and expect to be listened to.
0: The Nobel Prizes have come under critiques often, don't they, because of the way that they're administered. For example, you only have three people that can be awarded the prize, never mind how many people actually made the discovery or intellectual insight. And also the prize has to be given to people who are alive. It can't be given to teams. And these are all the ways that I suppose it it distorts people's views of how science works. But I wonder. So, in that case, this might be an in, a naive question. Why do scientists play along with it then? Well, why, why, why do you, why do people still accept the prizes and go along with everything and go to the award ceremonies?
1: Well, I don't blame someone for accepting a large jackpot if it's offered to them. It's a silly question, isn't it? But well, well no, 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 but I, but I think it, it is important that in many cases um, you can see that the person awarded the prize or the one of three awarded a prize in a large group, are really special. And in fact, in my book, I quote two different examples. It feels I know quite well. Uh, One was the uh, award that was given for discovering gravitational waves. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics, with one half to Rainer Weiss, and the other half jointly to Barry C. Barish and Kip S. Thorne for decisive contributions to the LIGO detector and the observation of gravitational waves. And there, there was a team of a thousand people. It was an immense technological achievement to uh, uh, be able to detect this tiny jitter in the equipment, which is like suddenly suddenly moving by the thickness of a hair being observed at the distance of a Zetora, an amazing technical achievement. I, I think that deserves a collective prize. But the people to whom they gave the Nobel Prize were people who I think everyone would accept are very special intellects, and they were the leaders, and they deserve to be highlighted. But there was another prize given for discovering that the expanding universe was speeding up, not slowing down. This year's Nobel Prize in Physics is about our entire universe. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics with one half to Professor Sol Perlmutter, the Supernova Cosmology Project, Lawrence, Berkeley National Laboratory. This was different because here there were two teams of about 15 or 20 people in each team, and they picked out three people altogether two from one team, one from the other, who were fine. But I mean, I know a lot of these people well, and there are several other members of the team who, in terms of their cumulative work, surpass any of the three people who got the prize. So that was the case when the three people who got the prize were singled out for reasons one can understand, but it would be quite wrong to regard them as sort of specially elite intellects compared to the other members of the team. You say that you're fortunate
0: to know many of the world's leading scientists. What is it that these people, in your view, who have the greatest intellects, who are the, uh, the the greatest minds in science, what do they have in common in their qualities?
1: I think they have a uh, almost obsessive wish to solve a certain problem, and of course, uh, I'm not denying that there are some people of really exceptional talent, but not all prize winners are in that category. But I think they are characterised by having an idea and trying very hard to pursue it. And I think one of the uh, things that any organisation which employs these people, be it a university or a social institute, should do is to allow people of this kind maximum freedom to encourage blue skies thinking in a long-term way, and outside the box. But of course, there are problems in academia with doing this, especially as young people feel that they want to uh, gain a reputation in some field, and therefore they are naturally encouraged to work in a field where there are a lot of other people working. And this leads to a sort of clustering tendency. And I think in fields that I follow quite closely, there are lots of speculative ideas on fundamental theories, unifying gravity with the force of the micro-world. There are lots of different ideas. One of them is string theory, which is a great idea, but probably there are more people working in that compared to the other theories than there should be, simply because there's a clustering effect. That if a lot of people are working in some particular direction, then a young person is more likely to get appreciation if they join that large group than if they plough their own furrow doing something more original. And is this is something which could be uh, taken account of, I think, in academic careers. I think there's an undue narrowness in the criteria that are used in appointing academics and promoting them. They ought to allow for originality and public outreach and not just papers published in particular learner journals. Your research and your career has been about
0: astronomy and cosmology. That's your field and I just wonder, does being an astronomer, does being a cosmologist give you a particular view of science? Does it give you a useful toolkit to sort of think about the rest of the world?
1: I think astronomy has been a very fortunate subject to be in because it has surged forward since the 1960s through uh, black holes, etc. and the Big Bang have attracted the public imagination. So it's an easy subject to popularise. And I would say that astronomy, like maybe evolutionary biology, are subjects which have a positive and non-threatening public image. Whereas if you work in genetics or nuclear physics, then the public is a bit ambivalent. So I think we have an advantage in publicizing it. But going back to whether being an astronomer gives one any special perspective, I would say it does do one thing. It gives one an awareness, not only the scale of the cosmos, but even more of the far future. To expand on this, most uh, educated people are aware that we humans are the outcome of nearly four billion years of evolution from the simplest life which emerged mysteriously on the young earth. We understand that. But I think most people who understand that nonetheless think that we humans are the culmination, the top of the tree. And I don't think any astronomer will believe that because we as astronomers are aware that the sun, though it's been shining for four and a half billion years, has another six billion years to go before it flares up and dies. And the expanding universe will go on far, far longer still. So we may not be even at the halfway stage in the emergence of cosmic complexity. We've no idea what sort of creatures will be around to witness the death of the sun, but they'll be as different from us as we are from a slime mold, and maybe electronic rather than a than flesh and blood. So we just can't predict that far future. But it gives us a vision of what could happen and of what we would snuff out if we screw up everything essentially and if life is indeed unique to the earth.
0: Puts all of the conversations about politics into into context, doesn't it? Um, Just one final question for you. You talked about the various phases of a scientist's life. I feel like you had lots of phases in your life and you're you're still going strong. And I wonder, what's the next phase for you? And are there still things left on your professional bucket list?
1: Well, well, I still hope to make some scientific contributions. But certainly in the uh, last 15 or 20 years, I spent a large fraction of my time head of major organizations trinity college and the royal society which left me not very much time for research anyway after retirement at the age of 70 i've been very lucky in that i've worked just as hard with the uh, lack of pressure coming from not being responsible for anything large so i feel i can pace myself and do some new things and i've helped to found a a new little institute on dealing with catastrophic global risks and I've written some books etc and given lots of lectures etc and I hope to go on doing this sort of thing as long as I can. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a wide range of contacts and to be based in a place like Cambridge University where retired people are treated very humanely and can still remain in touch with the young.
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, Martin, thank you very much for your time and uh, hope the next phase is as productive as all the others. (laughs) Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can keep up with all the latest analysis on science and technology by subscribing to The Economist. Listeners can get a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage this week was produced by Jolyon Jenkins and Jason Hoskin, with support from Leonie Tanza. Mixing and sound design is by Nico Rofas, and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.